It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Why is there so much resistance to the idea of women and femmes learning to defend themselves? How can self-defense training enhance our sex lives and relationships? And what's a guy to do when his girlfriend starts demanding sex whenever she wants it and at inopportune times? Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I'm so thankful that you're listening. We are going to explore all of this and more today with a wonderful expert. If you enjoy what you hear, please hop over to augustmclaughlin.com, where you can sign up for occasional updates by email, explore episode extras, and check out my books, Girl Boner and Girl Boner Journal. Now I'm so pleased to welcome Ellen Land. Is that really how you say your last name? That is that is beautiful. Land. Okay. Ellen Land <laughs> to the show. That is a first on this show, I have to say. Ellen is a lawyer, author, filmmaker, and writing teacher. As a public intellectual regarding gender justice, Ellen has been a speaker, UN press corps credentialed journalist, and delegate for major United States world conferences the Women's Conference in Beijing and Conference Against Racism in South Africa, and the Commission on the Status of Women in New York City, featured on Dateline NBC. Ellen's breakout book is Beauty Bites Beast, which is also the title of her award-winning documentary, which has screened all over the world. Ellen lives in California with her husband, Ken, and their three naughty dogs. I'm so happy to have you here, Ellen. Thank you. Thank you, August. I just love that we have in common, and we recognized immediately that we both had a background in the padded assailant training that Impact Personal Safety of California offers, and actually all over the world now. but Yes, it's one of the most empowering things that I've ever done is take those classes. And I was just telling Mackenzie, uh, the engineer here, about my own confidence level because of those classes. And just last night we were at an event and I was downtown LA, very dressed up, very low cut dress, you know, full makeup and everything. And I'm standing on this busy street and all these people are walking around and there were some kind of people making comments and you could feel stares. And I felt totally comfortable because I knew I could totally take care of myself. And that is such an empowering feeling because I didn't used to feel that way. No. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I've been through in life is that I have always pushed against the boundaries or the barriers that were erected for me based on gender, like uh, athleticism or being funny. We weren't supposed to be funny as little girls. And I uh, thankfully said, screw you, I'm funny. And there's nothing you can do to stop me. So try it. Do you know what I mean? And so, and I think it really helped too that I grew up on a farm, which, and was one of three daughters, and we didn't have sons. So we didn't have gender roles per se. We did everything. So, you know, I saw how, uh, integral female presence was on a little farm. (laughs) Wow, that's really fascinating. Do you remember learning any specific messages about sexuality? Well, I was always very horny. I discovered that um, my dad's reclining chair that we had given him for Father's Day had a vibrator on the um, arm. It had a heater and a vibrator, and I learned if I straddled it, I was probably four, uh, that 
I had very, very, very happy feelings between <laughs> my legs. And so, you know, it's like, oh, okay, woo! No wonder girls like horses. I'm just saying. And uh, then I discovered my mother's hand vibrator in a linen closet, and I plugged it in, and it had the same feel- feeling as Daddy's reclining chair. So I... Uh, lay down next to the reclining chair and I used my mom's little hand vibrator uh, in my happy happy place and she came in saw me going at it she took it away from me she said that's mine and left me lying on the floor so she didn't shame me I knew that you know I was supposed to play with my toys and she was supposed to have her toys so it wasn't some like um, sex shaming thing but I actually do a a solo show that I've also done all over the world called Now That She's Gone, Unraveling the Mystery of My Mother. And um, I'm just very grateful that, um, you know, she related to me the way she related to me because I never felt any shame over sexuality. Now, I also intuited that I wasn't going to be doing that in front of them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Which is perhaps a good thing to that's learn. A, a I mean, privacy it's private. thing. It's private but not shameful. Yeah. And that's a really important message for especially kids to get because that carries with you. Yeah, absolutely. At what point did you realize that you were experiencing orgasms? Well, I didn't have a word for it um, until, I don't know, maybe my early teens. And then I went to college and... Um, I was in Billings, Montana. We had a suite of gals. It wasn't a co-ed dorm at that time. And we had our own rooms around a big living room that we shared. So it was really a a, a bonding experience. And we all happened to be together one evening. And I discovered that I was the only one in like 10 girls, and we were girls, 18, 17, 18, that had had an orgasm. They didn't even know what it was. So I went downtown, Billings, Montana, the next day, and I bought a vibrator and alcohol. And I came back the next night and I said, okay, I want you to go into your room and don't come out until you've come. And so (laughs) it's like, I've always been kind of an evangelist. (laughs) You know what I mean? Very much so, in the very literal sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, hey. Impromptu sex ed. Yeah. You have something that is going to give you pleasure, and you don't have to depend on anybody else for it, just Mr. Buzzy and whatever you want to do. And fingers work, too, but you'll get a sense of what it feels like first if you use some enhancement, so to speak. Absolutely. Thank goodness they had you. (laughs) That's incredible. So... At a certain point in adulthood, you had an experience that changed the course of your life as far as becoming such an advocate for um, self-defense and for women really embracing their own strength. Could you take us to that experience? Sure. I lived in a big, 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 big craftsman house um, in a really sketchy neighborhood. My husband and I came home at midnight in two separate cars. He pulled in, and then I pulled in behind him in this long driveway, and all of a sudden he's knocking on the my window, and he says, stay in the car. I think somebody's broken into the house. Now it's midnight. And so I froze, and he went into the house. And it's like, Ugh. So then I shook myself up, and I said, what kind of partner am I to let my sweet husband, who doesn't have any skills whatsoever except maybe high school wrestling. What is he going to do? Wrestle somebody? You know, it's right. like, what? So I followed him in and as I crossed the threshold, a man in a ski mask was coming up the basement stairs, met me at the door, held up a knife and was ready to plunge it into me. 
I froze. And then a little voice said, do something, do it now. And I screamed so loudly, the man dropped his knife, grabbed his ears and ran like hell. So I'm a voracious reader, always have been, continue to be so. And the next day I was going to work and I was a segment producer at the time for a very large production company. And I went in um, and I was just stunned that I was able to scream. And I went to every single person and I said, do you know how to defend yourself? Do you know how to defend yourself? We had about 40 people on staff. And... I kid you not, August, every single man said, yeah, I think I could. And some of them were clearly lying. And 100% of the women said, oh, God, no, I can't even believe you screamed. Wow. And I went, wow, that's weird. That is very weird. So being the voracious reader that I am, I started to try to figure out if there was a book written about why human females feel so defenseless and why we continue to raise girls to think somebody's going to rescue them. It's like, no, they're not going to rescue you. Or maybe they might, but you can't depend on that. That's bullshit. And statistically, it's completely bullshit. So why do we keep clinging to this romantic notion that somebody's going to rescue us? So I wrote Beauty Bites Beast. Wow. That is <laughs> that is so incredible and so inspiring. And you write about the fact that every other species, the females defend themselves. Why don't we learn this? Well, it's not biology. You know, the arguments are, oh, I've, I've been doing this advocacy for so long. I've, I don't think there's anything I haven't heard. Especially in California, I get, well, I'm afraid I'll draw violence to me if I learn how to defend myself. And it's like this kind of... Um, law of attraction kind of thing. And I'm going, well, do you wear a seatbelt? Oh, yeah. Well, are you attracting car accidents by wearing a seatbelt? No. And I said, so being prepared for a possible approach or confrontation or something that's attracting it? Let's rethink that. (laughs) Yeah, that seems pretty counterintuitive for sure. I've also heard from some people when I took the classes at Impact, people share the reasons they're taking classes, and uh, we talk also about kind of how perhaps our loved ones are receiving that we're taking these classes. And I remember somebody in my class sharing that their partner was concerned that it would make her paranoid, that she would be walking around in fear, which I think is really interesting because what my experience has been is reading more, like reading The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker, who I n- know you know as well, mm-hmm. um, and taking he the wrote, classes at Impact. Yeah, he wrote the foreword to my book. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. and he's brilliant, yeah. um, as are you, and, and such a great, fierce pairing, I think. And um, what I have found is that the more I know and the more autonomy I have with my own body and the ability to protect myself, I, I'm not paranoid. I'm actually a lot less scared Is that generally what you see happening? Well, the metaphor I use a lot in my book and just kind of dip into, excuse the expression, in my movie is that I am a Red Cross certified lifesaver, or I, I was. I have distinctions that someone who doesn't know how to swim has. So I can look at water and go, hmm, too rough for me, or hmm, oh, yeah, I can handle that, and 
people who don't know how to swim look at all water with fear. So, you know, it's like, here's the real question for me, which is who benefits from our ignorance? Who benefits from us being clueless and afraid? Only a perpetrator, (laughs) right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And when you try to keep a whole body of people ignorant about something, what's up? Yeah. You know, it's really a deep, I think, justice issue and a big human rights issue and a literacy issue. So, you know, being literate about your body includes washing your hands before you handle food, uh, looking both ways when you cross a street. We do all sorts of things that are considered physically literate. I don't hear other people saying that that way, but it is. It's a level of physical literacy. You don't have to keep going over it and over it and over it. It's in your body. It's yours. It belongs to you. Same thing with self-defense. And when you understand it, you can relate to men more thoroughly as fellow human beings, not these creatures that you have to be careful around or in case they you piss them off and they're going to hurt you. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. And it's so analogous to what you were saying about lack of knowledge around sexuality when you know your body and you know what you're capable of, you can experience pleasure and joy and connection. And I think it's so parallel. It seems almost cut and pasteable. Yeah. Absolutely. One of the things I wrote in my book, which I was hoping would go viral, which it hasn't, is that I have a big chunk of the book about there's no single word for kicking a man in the crotch. You have to say, kick him in the groin. And so I coined a word, thwop, because it sounds like what it is. Yeah, it totally does. (laughs) But we have words for rape. We have lots of words for rape, ravage, you know, savage, you know, all that, violate. But we don't have the same language. And it's not an accident that we don't have a word for kicking somebody in the nuts. Similar to, again, the terms we have around sexuality. One reason that I coined the term girl boner was because there were so many terms, so many relating to, quote, male sexual pleasure or penis pleasure or whatnot. And there were none in the slang dictionary for a a woman, a female, a female identifying person. And I that I think our language shapes our culture and our culture reflects our language. Right. So we have so much power, which I think is one of the benefits of having your book. It's a way that people can understand. And then you also have this film which illustrates it. Um, I know people who are listening and they've never taken self-defense. What's one of the biggest myths that you hear? Size. Size. That if you're small, you can't defend yourself? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how do you reply to Well, that? I say that, okay, let's say you're walking down the street and you encounter a growling, snarling dog. First of all, what do you do? Well, if you've been educated and you back away, you don't look at it in the eye, you don't run, you respect the boundary because that's what the growling and the snarling is. It's setting a boundary. Watch out. There's going to be danger possibly, right? Yeah. So there's integrity in that. (laughs) It's like, do not mess with me, right? Yeah. So what you don't do is you don't check to see if it's male or female. It's irrelevant, right? Yes. As is the size because if it's a chihuahua, you're still not going to pick up a growling, snarling, chihuahua because that chihuahua is going to go for your face 
when you pick it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, you know, it's like, so size and gender, irrelevant yes. in many ways, if you regard yourself as consequential. And be, we basically raise girls to consider themselves inconsequential. You know, it's like, I was not taught how to deliver consequences. I was taught to be nice, no matter what. Be polite. Be nice. Well, that's great. I'm really good at it, and I'm really glad I am. I can be nice under the most excruciating circumstances. However, I need to work on some other things like boundaries and saying, you know what, you're too close back up, which is a very simple, yet it is a command. Absolutely. Absolutely. When you were talking about the dog, I was thinking about, you know, I have a little tiny bird, and when we try to clip her toenails, her little, I don't know if you call them toenails, her her little claws, claws, yeah, which we have to do. I mean, she's hard. She, you can't catch her. Right. I mean, and she's like less than a pound. Yeah. Or like a cat you're trying to grab and it's like. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, yeah. It's, it's incredible. And you strategically learn. I love what you said about learning that we are consequential because I think that is a takeaway from a course when you realize what your strengths are, that you don't have to have a specific abilities that look like some dude you saw on some TV show. You know, right. if I'm not Hulk, then I can't do this. That's right. That's right. And um, I've played games in my life, uh, been at big parties where I've toyed with introducing myself as either a homemaker, which is true. I've made homes, um, an actor, which is true. I've been an actor or a lawyer. And people are more attentive and interested and engaged with my lawyer self than they are with an actor or a homemaker. Same person. And how people categorize and put you in a box based on what they perceive to be your consequences. And actors are considered inconsequential, and so are homemakers. Mm. Lawyers are considered to be consequential. That is fascinating. And such a good point. Again, the power of words you know, and how much weight we give them. Absolutely. So we have a question from a listener that relates to our topic, I think in many ways, for our resident sex and relationship expert, Dr. Megan Fleming of greatlifegreatsex.com. This came from Doug, who wrote this. So my girlfriend has been really into sex positivity lately, going to events and whatnot. I'm fine with that, but she is taking things too far. She demands sex when she wants it and starts coming on to me out of the blue. I'm happy to oblige most of the time, but I think it's inappropriate when I'm in the middle of something or just got back from a stressful meeting or what have you. She isn't assaulting me, but a line is being crossed. If you agree, how do I make her see that? I don't want to spoil things for her. She has had a rough time of it growing up, and I'm happy that she is happy. Doug, thank you for your question. Here is what Dr. Megan had to say. Doug, great question. And what I love so much is just hearing your support for your girlfriend, um, her sexuality, her sex positivity. And at the same time, I also hear you holding space, having empathy, right? Knowing that she sort of had a difficult childhood and wanting the best for her. So again, all those things are really amazing. But I must say the best for her, but not at the cost to yourself. That, you know, ultimately there's so much here about you know, healthy boundaries and how to do it in a way that I always say we focus on the wish and the longing, not on the frustration. Um, but I think before I talk about maybe how to bring it up, it's important to realize this is so important because 
for her and just for anybody who's listening, right, it challenges sort of what we have are these myths of male sexuality. And the biggest one is that, well, two parts. The biggest two are always rock hard and wanting sex, you know, at any time, in a sense, always in the mood. And, you know, unfortunately, these myths are held up in a lot of media and, you know, in Hollywood. And so I think that, you know, your girlfriend may just not recognize that her wish and longing for sex at any time. She may be thinking like, that's your, in a sense, wet dream, right? Your biggest turn on. So first I would say, I'm not sure in any way she has an awareness of the impact this is having on you because, you know, she, like many, buy into that sort of male myth. So that's one important factor. And the second also is the fact that she's demanding sex. So from that perspective, unless it's a sort of consensual slave relationship, that's just not a turn on for most people. Uh, I'd almost say all, and it's certainly not consent. And so, you know, I think that from that perspective, you know, you can't command yourself to be aroused anymore. They command yourself to be sleepy and, you know, demanding something of someone and the performance of demand. But more importantly, it's just as a human being, right, that, you know, we are not slaves and we have free will and we have the right to choose. So um, for all these reasons, I think it's an important thing to bring up with your girlfriend. And again, as I said, doing it from the place of painting the picture saying, you know, I'm really excited about, you know, these parties and, and just again, describe some of the best moments or things you most like seeing, right? Start with that. And then you sort of say, and you know, what I think would make me even more turned on is knowing that, you know, we're finding times that's good for both of us. And really just sort of saying to her a reflection of what I've just shared with you, which is, listen, you love sex too, and you totally want her to be happy. And at the same time, guess what, for reasons that make complete sense, you're not in the mood, because uh, you be tired. And more importantly, as you mentioned, you're in the middle of something. Who likes to be interrupted in the middle of something? And can she, in a sense, put herself in your shoes to understand what that might be like? Because I said, chances are she might not even be aware. She might think that this is a positive thing that she's bringing to the relationship. She may not have a sense of for you right now, and that doesn't mean for always, but right, for right now and in this way, it's not working for you. And so that's the part you absolutely need to communicate. And I think if she understands the good place that it's coming from and the desire for you both to have, you know, the best sex life, but where you're both also showing up for yourselves and your own personal needs, I imagine she's going to have an amazing response. But as always, would love to hear how it goes. I love what Megan said about really uh, acknowledging that Doug is caring for his partner's upbringing and and her empowerment and not wanting to interfere with that, but also that consent is being broken and that consent is important for all parties involved. And I did wonder, Doug, if maybe you could consider telling her in the moment when she starts making the moves, if you've said to her, you know, this isn't a great time and, and maybe consider scheduling sex. I think then you could both look forward to it. And and I also think those difficult conversations are so important. Like Megan said, uh, really getting to that vulnerable place together could be really, really strengthening for you. Ellen, one of the most powerful things that I experienced in the impact class that I wasn't really expecting to be so powerful were the word play kind of role play exercises. Um in the role play exercises, we practice our consent muscles. And 
it was really interesting to me um, how, how challenging that could be to even working with people. It's not even a real situation, but we would have a, um, a scenario. So say it would be, uh, we would say, okay, here's the person in my life. It's It's an uncle and he's inappropriately like hugging me too closely or something. And then we would act it out with, you know, one of the teachers. And it was really interesting. We did a lot that had nothing to do with any sort of touch as well. That was just using that kind of um, self-advocacy. How important do you feel self-defense is for consent and boundary setting, like within relationships? It's integral. (laughs) And what is really important to me is practicing when it's not actually happening. To wit, we have fire drills when there's no fire happening. We have drills for earthquakes when no earthquake is happening because when you're under stress, when your adrenaline and cortisol are spiking and you're in fight or flight or freeze mode, you're not going to come up with good ideas because those chemicals are not about the intellect. It's about your body moving into action to see what's going to have you survive. So the brain science lately, and I can't cite anybody in particular, says that rehearsals are just as important as the actual thing. And they help you de-escalate and to uh, manage your adrenaline when it's actually happening. So that's why those exercises are so important. And one of the reasons that just a wholesale self-defense class taught by a buff man who thinks he knows what it's like to be in a woman's or a femme's body they can be I'm I'm not dissing them because that's too general however a lot of white men especially cis men do not get what it's like to walk around in a body that gets commented on that gets whistled at that gets harassed and just how upsetting that can be and how much trauma we carry just from the verbal assaults we have so to practice being verbally assaulted or practice how you would respond when it's not actually happening is it, it's vital. I remember talking in class about some of the techniques that we are taught will work but don't. And one was carry your keys between your hand. One one is you know carry mace. Um, and as you said, the fight, flight, freeze, when you're in that survival mode, your your hands will be shaking. You're not going to, I mean, you are not going to know how to hurt someone, but you might not be able to grab your keys, much less, you know, stab someone in the eye with it. So I think it's really important, those kinds of ideas that, as you said, you can't tell the difference, like the brain can't tell the difference, right, between a real attack or fake, whether it's verbal or physical. Yeah. And Mother Nature wants us to survive. So imagine the kind of energy it's taken for women to tamp down what Mother Nature wants her to do and to hand over the keys basically to her own car. It just breaks my heart because we are fully capable, potentially dangerous mammals. And that's why I use animals so much because the lion doesn't go, oh, you know what, uh, let's wait until daddy lion gets home. You know, it's like, what? It's absurd. You, <laughs> It's absurd. And yet we relate to f- human genders like they're immutable, that they're rigid, and they're not. 
you know, I, I grew up being called a tomboy, which I resented. It's like, I'm me. I'm not any Tom, and I'm not a boy. And it was so rigid. It's like I had behaviors that, like I mentioned earlier, I was funny, and I was strong. I was athletic and out there. And, and you asked questions. Yes. Like you were challenging the status quo in so many ways, which yeah. we're taught not to do. Yeah, absolutely. Be compliant. Be nice. And all of that stuff, which, I'm, I, again, I value nice. I do. I'm a super nice person. And I've been a stone-cold feminist all these years, and yet I have beautiful china, and I have crystal, and I have silver, and I know how to do that stuff. And I'm grateful for it. But I was raised to be an executive wife, not an executive. But given that I was such a rebel, it was like, <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to marry a man for money. That is, like, not okay with me. I mean, I want to like the person. I want to be their partner. I want to be somebody who is interdependent, not codependent or not dependent, but interdependent. That's really beautiful. That's really beautiful. I love that you mentioned tomboy because that term has always bothered me, that we have to label someone as a boy because they like a certain thing. We gender so many things that should not be gendered. Absolutely. (laughs) It's It's absurd. It's absurd. Yeah, yeah. It really is. I really feel that the confidence that we get from self-defense training makes us more capable of experiencing pleasure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, that's universal, too, by the way. You know, people don't like being subjugated or considered to be less. They really don't. And it doesn't matter what culture you come up in. It doesn't work. It's not sustainable. And by keeping women helpless, by keeping them dependent, we're keeping an unsustainable, rigid set of fictional rules in place. Mm. Well said. Well said. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, really. And it's so exciting to see people bumping up against and saying, no, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm going to relate to myself however I feel like even today or or hour to hour. Yes, in every instance. And I think that's another huge benefit of knowing our strength and our, our physical capabilities is, you know, we don't it doesn't turn us into violent creatures. I've, I've heard that too. Somebody actually challenged me when I, I shared an impact because you can have your graduation videos filmed and if you want to share them, you can. So I shared a couple and somebody commented and said, I think it's so sad that we're teaching women how to be violent like men. And, and I said, I'm not learning how to be violent. I'm learning the power of my body, which is so incredible. And I hope to never really use it. You know, I hope to... See, and that's the irony, is that we teach women to fight so they never have to fight. The best fight is no fight. Which studies show that if you take a quality self-defense class, you're less likely to be attacked. Absolutely. why is that? Well, we don't know because we haven't been able to get any money behind actual studies. But we think that you, um, at a molecular level, shift. And that whatever you are putting off, if you know when push comes to shove that you can be dangerous, you're, it's an existential shift from, ooh, I hope nothing happens to, you know what, if something happened, you know, I don't want it to happen, but if something happened, I, I can do something. That's a, that's a huge 
existential shift from helplessness. Hugely, yes, yes. And it becomes muscle memory. I remember after I finished an impact class, I was in Hollywood for a friend's book release event. And I was really tired because of that fight or flight thing that was happening in class. Because when I first went into those those exercises, I thought, oh, this will be fun. I used to be an actress. So it's just getting up and doing this little role play exercise where somebody's attacking you, but you know what to do. It's cool. And <laughs> I got up there and you're, I mean, it's real. It's it's terrifying. It's invigorating. Uh, but all of this brain stuff's going on. So like I had bruises and didn't realize it till later. I mean, your body really goes through a lot. So my adrenaline was really high after then dropped. And I'm so tired. I'm at this event. I'm walking down the street and like half comatose tired. And this man came up behind me and was making all these comments and kind of following along as as happens. And I just, without even thinking, went, no, and put my, my hand right out in front of his face. And I looked at my own arm, kind of like, who are you? Like, oh, wow. And just kept walking. And I looked at, there were people, everyone around was just taken aback by that. And I thought, wow, it's really working. Yeah, I was um, at the United Nations Conference in Beijing in 1995, and we had a stop, a layover in Japan. So my roommate at the time and I decided we'd take a train trip to a city not too far from our um, airport. And we were the only Caucasians in the station. And I saw a really drunk man in his 80s, and I thought, hmm, he's a World War II veteran and not happy to see us. It was not like, oh, welcome, Americans. I couldn't understand what he was saying, but he was so drunk he could barely stand up. So he started reeling over to us, and I said, with my hands up, stop right there. And he just was like, was like a cartoon with a frying pan flapped in his face, except it was my verbal frying pan in his face. So he just was like very confused. And then he spotted four Japanese schoolgirls over in another part of the station and he started reeling toward them. And right before he got there, I said, stop. And he turned around and then he started coming back toward me and I held up my hands and I yelled, uh, and I am a very big yeller. Um, I yelled, no. And he stopped again. Then he reeled back toward the four schoolgirls and in unison they all lifted their hands and said no and everyone in the train station applauded there were there were no lessons verbally shared what they saw was immediately theirs because there's what they couldn't unsee what they had just seen and that it worked Mm. that shows how powerful it is to see on the screen also, I think, when because we don't see representations. Ever since taking these classes, I see violent scenes so differently. You know, you act out like what you would do, and half the time I'm just like, that is, she would be able to do something. Like she would, every single time, even if it's like a trained FBI agent, they will have her just like fall to the floor. Yeah. And it just, it, it's incredible. And that's why I think your film, one of the reasons it's so important so that people can see it. Thank you. It's on Amazon Prime. So I want as many eyeballs on that movie as possible because part of how I made it was to go, people are not going to be able to unsee these images because when they see it, it becomes theirs. Especially the opening scene. Yeah. I it replays in my head just I'm thinking it right now and 
I had already taken impact classes. It still was very profound for me. I, I don't want to give it all away, but essentially some, a, a woman really, really protects herself. Yes. And uh, she's Indian, and it seems to be in India, yeah. in a culture where women have even fewer rights. Right. And um, I think that's so important. Would you tell us a little bit more about the film, what people can expect from it? Well, basically, I unravel, unpack a lot of myths about women and self-defense. And I didn't, I kind of lightly followed a few individuals, but really in my mind as a filmmaker, I made the protagonist women's self-defense itself. Because at first I was invited to a factory in Mexico to train women there because the man I knew uh, from Landmark had read my book and he contacted me and he said, I'm tall, I'm blonde, I'm privileged. I had never realized just how scary it must be to walk around in a woman's body. And I read your book and I will never be able to unsee that again. And the women who work for me in this factory, I can see that they're afraid of me, which is like, I am I'm just a big mush bunny. <laughs> and mm-hmm. You know, that's not okay with me. Would you come down and teach them how to defend themselves? What a great ally. That's beautiful. Isn't it? Mm -hmm. And so I thought the movie was going to be about that. And I went, whoa, 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 wait a second. If I make a movie about these women in a Mexican factory, people will be able to go, oh, well, that's not me. I'm not in Mexico. Such a macho, violent culture. There is not one culture that doesn't have misogyny and violence against women. Even the really great countries, when you get alcohol and you get domestic stuff going, there's violence. All right. And um, we have this epidemic of violence against women and children. And as far as we can tell, the only way to stop it is to have someone in the family stop and say, no, that's it. We don't do that here. Stop the cycle. Yeah. Because it is, it's a cycle, right? Just as abuse is a cycle, so are these ideas yeah. that we pass on and on and on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How can somebody know that a self-defense class is an I- ideal one, a really empowering, impactful one? Well, first of all, I would not do a self-defense class if they didn't have at least one female lead instructor. Because she knows, she knows the socialization, I have such trouble saying that word, socialization that we have to deal with. It's not just a matter of learning how to hit. It's undoing centuries, millennia of conditioning that you don't give men commands, you don't say no, you're nice no matter what. That's some really embedded crap. It's embedded. And our survival has depended on it. So it's not just some kind of dumb willy-nilly thing. It's like a lot of women have watched what's going on, and they've figured out that the best way to get by and the best way to survive is to comply. That is a serious coping mechanism that you just can't undo immediately. And um, so I would look for a female co-instructor at the very least. And ideally, the woman is the lead instructor, and the man is there to be her partner. 
um, because my husband and I, Ken Gruberman, he's like the most perfect partner for me. He believes it's his job to go around the world with me, partnering me, and showing people how a partnership actually works, not one that's dominated by one or the other, but a true partnership. And people don't see that very often. They assume he's the he's the boss. They, ass, they ask him questions about the movie, and he goes... I do what she tells me to do with regard to this movie. And people have never heard that before. Mm, That's really, really fascinating. Yeah. 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 That you work as a team. Yeah. Yes. And I know at Impact, I believe all of my instructors were female. Then they have... They had male instructors who were wearing the the suits. Could you talk a little bit about the uniqueness of what Impact does with with those suits? Well, the suits, um, the, the padded instructor... Um, women are so conditioned and I think this is good conditioning is to never hurt anybody even if they're being hurt by that person it's a very strong strong behavioral conditioning and we had to come up with something where women could be assured that what they're doing is not actually hurting somebody right so these were engineered with protection for the head and protection for every point but the head and the groin are the main targets for getting a knockout and still people apologize i know i did yeah oh sorry i'm sorry wait a second i just paid hundreds of dollars to have this training and i'm apologizing it's like whoa look how deep that is yeah yeah you learn so much about yourself and your own kind of conditioning that you've experienced for sure yeah and it's not it's not an individual's fault it's culturally dictated um, and it's not a personal flaw. It's just what we've observed and taken in and uh, continued to perpetuate until we break it. Mm. Do you have any suggestions for someone who doesn't have access to such a class? Maybe there isn't one in their small town or they don't have um, the, enough budget for it. Are there things that you can learn on your own? Yeah, see my movie. <laughs> that sounds like shameless self-promotion, which, by the way, is a taboo for women. But nobody else is going to even promote say me. right. You it's know? not. There's no shame in promoting no your wonderful work that you work so right. hard on. But you will see things that you will not be able to unsee, and that will be yours. We teach. Uh, we don't teach. It's not a self-defense learning movie. However, you will see things that you don't see in movies, and that's how we learn to use fists. I mean, you know, I when I teach kids. They're already using fists like this that will break their little hands. So we have to have them unlearn fists and teach them eye strikes and heel palms instead because that won't break anything, right? right? But they've seen enough movies and enough cartoons that they come in using fists. And it's like, wow, yeah. that's the power of imagery. Yeah, and and the hits are only a little part of it because there's also things like after you knock someone down, stepping back and having awareness and right. looking around you and making sure you're safe. And there's so many steps that people don't think about and to be able to see it in action would be Absolutely. helpful. And my movie too will inspire people to go, okay, what am I going to do in my community to bring in self-defense? Yes. You know, because I, I did it as a tool to have people go, okay, I need this. And then people are so creative and so entrepreneurial, they'll figure it out. Yeah. So Beauty Bites Beast, you have the book and you have the film. Mm -hmm. Where can people find those? What's the best way? Amazon streaming. 
for my book and Amazon for the uh, no Amazon streaming for my movie and Amazon for my book too. And also, I co-authored a book with Lisa Gaeta, who is the CEO of Impact, uh, called "The Safety Godmothers," and it's uh, designed for a parent to read with tweens and teens. Uh, and it's twenty-six success stories from our training and a lot of them are verbal because you know that's that's the biggest success is to be able to say something and have that go away now when push comes comes to shove i want people to know what to do but it's a really inspiring book and parents have contacted us contacted us and said you know what my my daughter was like yeah i don't want to read what you're reading and then she got sucked into it and we both read it and we had the best conversations we've ever had in our lives mm. I want that book for all of my nieces. Mm-hmm. And Lisa's wonderful. I interviewed her for my Girl Boner book for the consent and boundary setting and all of that because that course was so impactful for me around those conversations. I think that's really, really important to to start from the ground up and having consent outside of the bedroom, that it's not something we just limit to sex, which makes no sense. Because if you don't practice consent and boundary setting in your life, how are you going to do it when you're intimate? Right. It just won't happen. Right. No, it yeah. won't. How has this work influenced your life? Obviously, you were, you had, a, you've always had a lot of gusto. Um, you learned, you know, you've been challenging all of these kind of social norms. But doing this film, doing the book, uh, interacting with people, public speaking, how, how has all of this um, impacted your own sense of, of self and place in the world? Well, it's made me study women's history especially, but it's also made me study social progress and how it works. And what you have out of the gate are people who are relentless and persevering and who are not stopped by people saying, oh, you're crazy, because I've been told I'm crazy a lot, and that's fine, I don't care. Um, I experienced such a profound shift in the way I held myself in the world after I took the impact course, I just have to and cannot stop sharing it. It's like I have a vaccine for a disease and I know what you can do to make sure that disease doesn't level you, mm. you know. Such and, a sense of purpose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm very grateful to that man who broke into our house because he <laughs> he sent me on a vector that wouldn't have happened, I don't think. You really turned that into something remarkable yeah, in because, a positive way. Yeah, well, thank you. And um, I just kind of can't not do it. And every movement, whether it was to teach women how to read, which was also closed off to them, or to uh, keep their own earnings, which was closed off to them, or to drive or to ride a bicycle, there has been controversy, like women are not supposed to have birth control, women are not supposed to la 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 la. And it's all the same group of people. And a lot of them are women, because women... It's internalized misogyny, Well, it's, it's being human. Yeah. It's being human. They des- they've decided that they want to support the patriarchy, and so that's what they do. They didn't sign up for the sisterhood. So I think it's really absurd to make women wrong for not being feminists because they didn't sign up for that. Right. It's not something that they just woke up and decided. Yeah. It was it was embedded into them, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we need to have compassion for... I think women get blamed more often. Oh, there's a double standard. Oh, she should have known better. She should have supported other women. It's like, based on what? So here's another double standard that women are d- disappointing you over. Really? Really? Yeah, not cool. It's a trap. 
Now, am I going to talk to them about it? I don't know. I'm probably going to talk to people more heartily if they're on the fence. When you can actually make a difference. Or if someone has questions. I have a friend who asked me about trans identities and non-binary identities because she'd never met anyone who was trans or non-binary. And she asked me if it was a trend because she really wanted to understand it, not because she was trying to make a point and convince me. And you can tell the difference. When somebody is actually wanting to engage in a conversation, I think that's really big. And then leading by example, I think, can also get people to that place where they're on the fence, don't you think? Uh Uh-huh, absolutely, absolutely. And you're, you're so right, August. It's like I have had the experience of being on a panel and being picked up in a chauffeured car for a talk show in Boston, and I'm chatting away with the woman who's also in the car, and we're having a good time and laughing. And she says, so what are you doing on the show? And I said, I'm the token feminist. She goes, you're a feminist? Oh, my God, you're so nice. It's like, (laughs) (laughs) like going... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's kind but, of a big part of feminism, actually. Well, right? Well, it's like f- kindness and equality. Well, yeah. and But yeah. she had been raised in a super church where we were demonized and told that the all the problems that the United States is uh, experiencing is because of feminism. Oh, and that you hate men. Uh-huh. Yeah. Those are such sad, sad myths. <laughs> so sad. And so she was, she had her stereotypical template blown to bits. <laughs> I bet she did. That's incredible. Yeah. So if people want to engage with you specifically, um, can they reach you through your website? Yeah, absolutely. Beautybitesbeast.com. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining me and for the incredible work you do. I'm really grateful for it. Thank you. And if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please hit subscribe wherever you're listening and leave a rating and review. Both will help the show reach more people, including those who could most benefit. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazzell, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast, brand, movement, and book series at girlboner.org and more about Period at periodnetwork.com.